This is Ken Lubin, and welcome to the Ultimate Hire podcast. What is the Ultimate Hire? The Ultimate Hire is the professional that every business, team, or leader needs in their organization. This is the high-performance individual that always rises to the top, brings the team to the next level, and can significantly add to the bottom line. The Ultimate Hire is the person that you can't afford to be without. Finding, attracting, hiring, and retaining these professionals is critical to the success of your business. We have identified these traits and can help you find these top professionals. A little bit about me. I'm a managing director and longest tenured employee with ZRG Partners. I'm the creator of the Ultimate Hire blog, founder of Executive Athletes, a U.S. Olympic Committee career advisor, and endurance athlete as well as following my true passion of being a husband, father, and son. I love to get people out of their comfort zone while helping them achieve their dreams and companies achieve their goals by helping them realize the importance of living a high-performance life. This podcast will feature hiring strategies, interview tips, conversations with key business leaders, as well as other search professionals. This is designed to give individuals and organizations tools and tactics to have a competitive advantage for career growth, business growth, and insights to the most important resource, the people. If anyone has any questions, feel free to reach out to me at klubin at ZRG Partners, and I hope you enjoy the show. Today's guest is the incredible Chris Waddell. Chris was recently inducted into the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Hall of Fame, won more medals than any male monoskier in history, was also a world champion and Paralympic medalist in wheelchair track, and in 2009 became the first nearly unassisted paraplegic to summit the 19,000-foot Mount Kilimanjaro. With 13 Paralympic medals, He is a Hall of Famer for the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Association and the Paralympics. He began, but he began his career as a ski racer at six and was competing for Middlebury College when his ski popped off in the middle of a turn. The resulting fall left him paralyzed from the waist down. Less than a year later, he started to monoski and soon became the fastest monoskier in the world. The Dalai Lama honored him as an unsung hero of compassion. Skiing Magazine put him on their list of 25 greatest skiers in North America, and People Magazine named him one of the 50 most beautiful people. Those are some amazing accomplishments. So, Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ken. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. So, tell us a little bit about who Chris Waddell is in his own words. Wow. They're going to start with the hard one, right? Uh, exactly. It's, it's that it's that interview and recruiter side of me saying, tell me about yourself. <laughs> tell me about yourself. Exactly. Which the one that I dread is the, what do you do? I'm like, okay, <laughs> there's not a really an easy answer for this. Uh, you know, I think part of it is, is, is an, I'm an athlete at heart. I'm an athlete in heart and in mind. And, and ski racing was my greatest teacher. It was where I had my greatest, greatest successes, my greatest failures. I had to figure out how to move forward from both of those. And, 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 and it's really, it's, it's, it's the lifestyle. I think that I, that I enjoy the lifestyle of being an athlete. So that's, that's part of who I am. As I continue to grow older, 52 years old now, I, I want to continue to grow, you know, and, and, and I think that I'm, I, I am in some ways a, 
a conflicted growth mindset person that, that I, I really wish that every single moment of every day I was, I was growth mindset and thinking, okay, okay, this is an opportunity. Everything that goes wrong is an opportunity, but there's, there's definitely that distinct part of me that wants to, wants to be like, cool, we're all set. But, uh, but recognizing that, that for me, growing, learning, and dreaming is, is how I continue to stay young, how I continue to, to, to continue to every day be able to push something forward. So that's really, uh, does that answer your question? Can no, you it is. Job I, work? And I love what you're talking about, the whole, the growth mindset, right? And I think it's sort of, what do they say? The, the second you retire is the day you start dying. And, and in reality, what were they? That's why retirement age is 65, because you retire then and actuarially you would die at 67, right? So people aren't doing that anymore. And what's crazy now is how late people are working because they are continuing to learn, right? It keeps the brain fresh. It keeps, it keeps you moving. And I think that's more and more important, but also as an athlete, like you were saying is we're always trying to get better. No matter what age you are, you want to become better or you want to lift more, you want to go faster, or you want to learn how to do something a little bit better. So I love what you're saying there. Yeah. It's kind of that, uh, that sort of college football coach mentality, right? If you, you ain't getting better, you're getting worse kind of thing. It's you know, so it's, true. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the accident that made, you know, that paralyzed. Was it, where was it? Was it Middlebury at the snowball or? No, it was actually at Berkshire East. So I grew up first at Mount Tom in Holyoke, Mass. And then, and then graduated to Berkshire East, you know, went from 680 vertical to like 990 or a thousand or something, went up to the big mountain. And, uh, and, and that's where I think from 14 on I had raced out of Berkshire East and, and, and so college skiing, that's the way it works, right? You leave your college team, you go home for vacation, you go back to your junior team and you go train. And so with my brother and a, we met up with a bunch of friends up there and we were going to train that day. And, and for me, it was, it was really, it was kind of like my first year that I was going to hopefully going to ski for Middlebury. I started in the middle of the year, the year prior and trained with the team, but didn't get a chance to compete. And, and so this was going to be my year, really. I'd worked really hard throughout the fall. And, and it was that growth mindset, right? And for me, it felt like skiing, I needed, to, I needed to do something that I'd never done before to really be successful on that level. So training-wise, it meant that I needed to do something that I'd never done in order to be prepared for that. So each day... I literally, and, and it, was, it was one of the coolest periods of time in my life where I felt like I wanted to push myself to the point where I wanted to quit. Because if I reached that point, then I had the crux in my day. I could, I could move beyond that point. And if I moved beyond that point, I was creating a new narrative and, and a new possibility. And so maybe when the snoof, snow flew I'd be able to I'd be able to do what I mindset and we were just skiing and it was super warm you know I mean you know how it is in Massachusetts oftentimes those early season right before Christmas the snow guns are blasting and you're going up the chairlift and you're doing everything to cover your goggles so that your goggles aren't covered with the snow coming out of the snow gun so you can actually see when you get to the top or there are even those times where it gets on the bottom of your skis and you get up to the top and you can't slide off because you've got a totally different set of crystals going on that are like Velcro when you get off the top. But, uh, 
Yeah, it was just a freak thing. I was just looking for looking for that feeling, just looking for that feeling of being in concert with with my equipment, with the mountain, with my technique. And my ski popped off in the middle of a turn and nobody saw it. I don't remember anything after my ski popping off. So reconstructing it from talking to my brother and some friends who were there, they found me on the side of the trail, but I told them I didn't think I'd hit a tree, which obviously you'd think you'd have a decent idea if you'd hit a tree. But it sounds like I just fell in the middle of the trail and broke two vertebrae, bunch of ribs, collarbone, got a concussion, all that stuff. And so that spun me in an entirely different direction. But in some ways, I maintained a very similar mindset to the mindset that I'd had approaching my ski season. No, Berkshire East, actually, funny thing is, I was, I grew up racing there too, because I was at Wachusett. So we're always grew up at Wachusett and spent lots of time at Berkshire East. And my daughter is actually just high school championships are at Berkshire East. So it's a, oh, yeah. it's a great race hill. It's, it's a great spot. And, you know, like you were saying, it was a, it was a freak, crazy freak accident, which I'm sure, but then spurred you going into some new realms, right? The Paralympic skiing, the Paralympic Olympics. Talk to us a bit about that. Yeah, you know, and so, so it's interesting. So just a, a little connection with Berkshire East as well, before we get started in the other direction, is that Jim Schaefer uh, was the first guy to me. Okay. So he, he and I were the same age. He was the first guy to me after my accident. He now owns Berkshire East and continues that, that gem in a lot of ways, that gem of a mountain that serves so many people, serves so many racers, both junior racers, college racers, and probably adult racers as well, you know? And so it's a, it's a really cool place. It really is. And so, uh, yeah, so, so it spun me off into into the Paralympics. And, and actually, before I got started in the Paralympics, I skied in some college carnivals. My coach, Bart Bradford at Middlebury, I came back for the spring semester. Then I left for the summer and actually figured out what life was like in a wheelchair and how to, how to get stronger. I mean, I'd lost 50 pounds in the hospital, you know, went from like 175 down to 125 wow. kind of thing, like lost all the muscle. And obviously I lost all the muscle in my legs, but I lost that same amount of muscle in my arms and everything. I remember lifting for the first time and I sort of stretched and like put my, put my hand behind my shoulder to kind of stretch. And I don't recognize that. My hand does not recognize that as my shoulder because it was just skin and bones. And so I got stronger over that summer. I went back. Bart had been out at Mount Hood. He was coaching a junior development team and the U.S. Uh, disabled team at that time, this U.S. adaptive team now, was skiing there as well. And Jennifer Kennedy, who had skied for BART at UVM, was one of the coaches on the disabled team. And so he saw these guys skiing in monoskis, and I came back and he called me up and he said, hey, come on down to the office. I've got an idea. And I came down to the office and and he said, hey, I saw these guys skiing in monoskis. You should, you should do this. You know, we want you to be part of the team. We'll, we'll get you a monoski. And, and I said, all right, like this sounds like a great idea. Like let's, let, let's do it. And, and funny enough, I also, when I was in the hospital, a buddy of mine, a guy named Bill Chafee had come to visit me. And a friend of his was making a film on adaptive skiing. So she had been out at Winter Park. And Winter Park at that time had the biggest adaptive ski program. And she wanted to make a film about it. And he said, would you be willing to learn 
while I was still in the hospital, would you be willing to learn in front of the camera? And I said, sure. You know, and at that point, I'm still thinking, hey, you know, I'm, th that sounds fine, but I'm going to be skiing standing up. Like, I'm not going to do any of this other stuff. But, but yeah, I started skiing in a monoski. Started, started my first day was three days short of a year uh, from the accident. So it was March 17th. The accident was on March 20th. And, and went out, went to the snowball, went with Bart, and, and uh, I'd never seen a monoski. I'd never seen anybody skiing a monoski. We got into this. I got into it, got all strapped up, and Bart said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I don't know. Like, we go to the top, right? Like, this is what we do. I, could, I started skiing at such a young age, I couldn't remember not knowing how to make a turn. And so he didn't want to be the same, wanted to say no, predictably got off the chairlift, I fell over, he picked me up, you know, and it was just one of those that I thought, you know, I know how to do this. It's different, but I know how to do this. You put, you tip a ski on edge, you put pressure on it, you make the ski turn. It's not that hard, right? It's probably, this is going to be sort of like running slalom where I'm just going to stay in the middle, upper body in the middle and let the ski do the work. And that, that didn't work at all. I mean, it, it, it works now, but it <laughs> right. didn't work then. My body had no idea how to obey what I was trying to get it to do. And, and I just fell over. I didn't make one turn that first day. Called the guy, Jim Martinson, who became a huge hero of mine. He'd lost both legs in Vietnam to a bouncing Betty. Skiing was a huge part of the culture of his family. Bunch of brothers that they skied. They were, you know, crazy guys out there going fast, taking jumps, doing all that stuff and racing as well. And and he, when his kids started learning how to ski, he wanted to be able to share that with them. And so he developed a monoski to be able to share it with them and thought, you know, they'll get too good for me and they'll leave me. He at like 63, 65 or something like that called me up and he said, hey, I see this monoskier X at the X Games. C can you get me into that? <laughs> I said, oh my yeah. God, awesome. <laughs> which was awesome so so you know i mean that was that was my start and and i went out to winter park to film that that film to dream again debbie robin did that film who's who's still in massachusetts and and uh, i saw a bunch of guys training a bunch of americans aussies kiwis were all training all all disabled skiers were training at winter park and i saw them and i talked to them and sort of got some of the schedule and they said yeah there's a there's a race back at, 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 um, at Sunapee, at Sunapee, which was incidentally the first area where I'd skied as a little kid, like wow. the first real area. And yeah. I hadn't been there, like skied there at three, hadn't been back. And so, so at 21 or whatever it was, 21. I went back and two weeks maybe and I had <laughs> I couldn't go fast I couldn't do anything and but I went to a ski race and it's like okay well this is a ski race and you've been to a lot of ski races you carry yourself as a ski racer there are things that you do and I synced right back into the mindset of being a ski racer with you know no justification for it other than you know a previous life in a lot of ways and and i looked at the course and said okay this is it and i wanted to qualify for nationals and there weren't many races in the area and i said 
you have to go faster than you've ever gone. I, I don't know how fast you have to go, but you have to go, you have to go as fast as you possibly can. And, and I went through and, and it was funny. It was mostly, it was, it was basically like a glorified NASTAR course. It was, it was, you know, beer league kind of course sort of thing. So it was not a, it was not a world cup giant slalom or anything, but, uh, but I went and I, I, I won the first run in my category against the other mono skiers by like seven seconds or something. Like wow. That. I was like, wow, this is huge. And I, I think I scaled it back a little bit. The second run I was, I won by like a second in the second run, but, uh, but you know, there was a guy like, like Tom Ferran was there who was a great athlete. He, he'd been a, big wheelchair racer and uh, not necessarily he wasn't as 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 far along as far as skiing was concerned as he was as a wheelchair racer but uh but yeah that was really that was that was my start but so much of it was skiing skiing carnivals I, I went to the carnivals and went and and uh and skied at the first carnival was that I went to was actually the Williams carnival and we skied at Brody which is no longer right. open, Kelly's Irish Alps, the giant slalom at Brody as a, so I raced once at Mount Tom, which was sort of like pseudo, it, it, it was a race, but I don't know if I had a USSA license or you know those kinds of things. But as a seven-year-old, I think it was, my first race was at Brody, my first giant slalom was at Brody. And, and the funny thing is, the college race, the Williams Carnival, was the exact same start and exact same finish as the race had been when I was a seven-year-old. Wow. Yeah, things, as they stay the same, you know, they never change, right, is, is what it is. And I think, yeah, what was it? I, the Brody race, the Carnival, yeah, the Williams, and then we had the GS at Jiminy, is what I remember from that whole Carnival season. But that's a... In and yeah, Sunapee, Sunapee now has one of the largest adaptive programs in the East. I think it's, or it's the biggest one in the East. I know it's, you know, my kids race down at Sunapee and I know that whole back corner is all taken up with adaptive programs. So I don't know if you helped spur that on, but that was a, a big thing at Sunapee. I, I don't think, I can't take credit for anything really, <laughs> but it's great that it's, it's great that it's happening. Yeah, no, Sunapee, Sunapee, yeah, that is a great little hill. And um, I think they've actually cut a new race trail there. That is probably, my daughter said, it's like it's like a World Cup trail now that comes through the finish and you're just flying. It's a blast. But um, so, so, yeah, I love what you're saying, though, how you carried yourself. Like the accident didn't really change who you were, right? You still had your identity. You carried yourself as a ski racer, which you know, we all know, and my listeners all know that, you know, I, I love ski racing as well. And that it's a, it's a lifestyle thing that once it's in your blood, you never want to get rid of it. What was it like though, strapping yourself into that missile, right? And that had to be, I can only imagine how scary that would be because it's like, where does this thing go? I'm in a missile. I'm the good thing about the top of Middlebury for the listeners. It's pretty flat. So until you, until you get over and then it's straight down, but it's a uh, well, then it's terrorist. Then it's terrorist. Yeah. Then you launch off the head wall and it's all done. But it was uh, yeah, and then how, how scary would that be? Then it drops. How scary? They actually it blew was... that whole mountain out. They blew that whole thing out and it made it. You know that big head wall at Middlebury and the GS. You'd go over. They blew that out right. and leveled it out much. So it's not. Oh really? So it's a consistent pitch now. Yeah. Which is because that that was always one of those that was it was petrifying because it was part. 
part Nordic race, right? Because you have the, the gigantic start. Yep. And then you're pulling to like the second gate, like a Nordic skier. And then and then the bottom drops out and then it flats and then the bottom drops out and then it's flat out long flat. And then yeah, I mean it was it was a tough hill. Uh being in a mono ski was was petrifying because it almost felt like like gravity was was this magnet. Like it was it was this metal thing. And gravity just seemed to like grab hold of it. And anytime I was going directly down the hill, it felt like I was going 150 miles an hour. And my perspective is totally different because I'm sitting, you know, my butt is like 18 inches off the ground kind of thing. And so, so I'm so much shorter than I had been before. That perspective is different, but I'm also totally out of control. So anytime, anytime I'm pointed down the hill, I feel like I'm, I am, I am going so fast and I'm going to kill myself. And, and the, you know, it's kind of like when you taught your kids how to ski, right? The ultimate break is, well, fall, <laughs> you're totally out of control fall. And, and so that was, I utilized that break a lot. It, it took me a long time to feel like I was actually, it actually took me until the 92, 93 ski season. So the first ski season I skied in a mono ski was 89, 90. I made the team in April, the US team in April of 91, but it wasn't until that following 93, really like January of 93 is when I felt like I was finally part of the ski. So this is, so what is that? That's, that's a good solid three years and skied for a month in, in New Zealand and you know, did, did a whole lot of skiing, but yeah, it took, it took a long time to feel like I was actually working with the ski and what events would you do did all four did Small you really? gf super d downhill and yeah did all four gs and super g were kind of more of the sweet spot downhill you have 35 pounds of metal strapped to your butt and and trying to trying to get the ski from one side to the other side quickly was was a whole lot of work and especially for me i broke my back at like T10. And so I really have the muscles pretty much right below my sternum. So I don't have a whole lot of like torso muscles to work with. And so trying to, trying to bring the ski from one side to the other was hard. And downhill for me was hard because I didn't have the ability to sit up. So if I was, if I was in that sort of like forward position, I couldn't sit up to a neutral position. For those of you who've ridden a bike, recognize that you know, you don't want to be, have all your weight on your handlebars as you're going over a jump on your mountain bike because that helps to do a front flip, right? And usually it doesn't work out all that well. And that's what downhill felt like for me. A lot of those, especially initially, a lot of those jumps were a good opportunity for me to end up upside down and with 35 pounds of metal strapped to my butt and just sort of the carnage of a, of a NASCAR crash, you know? So you had mentioned the X Games. Did you do the ski across in the X Games as well? I mentioned I was not very good in the air, right? So <laughs> that's the craziest thing I've ever seen in my life is sit skis in the X Games. I went and grabbed the microphone and I talked about all the skiers who were on the, I mean, if it had been sort of earlier in my career, I probably, I probably would have done it. It was not, it was not where I was good. I was never, I was never that good in the air. And 
and and so so I didn't gravitate toward that. But and and looking at what they do, I mean, these are like, I don't know. I mean, you're going off like a 20 foot high jump and having to clear 50 feet to get to the downside. And I don't, I'm, and I'm probably even making up those numbers. They could be, I could be underestimating them. But it's a, uh, you know, it's 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 amazing what they're doing. And I remember one guy, Tyler Walker, who is uh, who's from New Hampshire. He and and he and this other guy, Kevin Connolly, are both uh, both double amputees. And I was doing the commentary on this one. And Tyler took one route. He was ahead and took one route. And Kevin was was behind and just hit the big jump. And all of a sudden. I'm just watching it and the two of them are just coming closer and closer and Kevin is is still in the air and luckily, you know, a few inches to spare when they both landed and nobody landed on top of the other one. But man, it was it was awesome. But it was it was such a great spectacle. And we were talking beforehand about uh, Darren Rolves. I just did a little podcast with Darren Rolves and he was racing skier cross. And during the, the semifinals that year, he came running up from the tent at the X Games because he didn't want to miss. He thought it was the finals. He didn't want to miss it. So how cool is that to have a guy who had won at Kitzbühel running up the hill to make sure that he doesn't miss the monoskier final? I mean, that was, that, that was really what that event was all about. It was so cool. To see guys just laying it all on the line but yeah i was i was talking about it. yeah that's the <laughs> definition of hucking it there's there's no bigger definition than letting it fly or hucking it than doing that and a, a sitski i can only imagine you know i have enough time just in air going through a park right and it's like even that's scary at this point at this age i'm like oh my god it's just it's nuts yep i think it's true yeah but it's cool so anyway Let's shift gears a little bit. Talk to us about the Kilimanjaro expedition. What, what brought you there? How did that idea even come up? Talk, you know, that is, that is pretty rugged. Kilimanjaro is a 19,340-foot Kilimanjaro, tallest mountain in Africa, tallest freestanding mountain in the world. When I was skiing, I felt like, I felt like it wasn't, you know, the, the objective is, is you want to win, right? You put in the work, you want to win. But I also felt like I could, I could fill a void that was left by assumption. So the assumption is that you are disabled and by virtue of being disabled, that means that you are, you are effectively less. And, and that leaves a void. And I wanted to fill that void with a picture, with a story so that people would actually see themselves. And when I went you know, 70 miles an hour on one ski, that picture didn't fit with the picture of somebody in a wheelchair. And that was, that was really my higher goal as, as, a, as an athlete was to be able to, be able to you know, spread a little bit of doubt, be able to flip that perspective, tweak people's perspective just a little bit. And the Paralympics, when I was on, uh, when I was, when I was competing, really, we weren't on television. So people didn't get a chance to see it all that much. When I decided I wanted to climb Kilimanjaro, it provided a perspective, a perspective because we're all climbing a mountain, right? No matter who we are, we have our daily mountain. We are all Sisyphus pushing our, pushing our boulder up the mountain every single day, which really that ultimately for a, 
hand cycle and off-road hand cycle is a great analogy because there is no coast whatsoever in an off-road hand cycle when you're going uphill. When you're pedaling, you're moving. And if you stop pedaling, there's no coast whatsoever. You just stop and you have to start again. But I thought that people could understand the idea of man versus mountain, right? Of trying to conquer and conquers really the wrong word for a mountain because you never conquer a mountain, right? You might be able to, you might be able to have a communion. You might be able to, to be a part of it. Your mountain might let you get to the top of it, but that mountain's going to continue to be there long after you're dead. Right. So, uh, but, but that was really the hope was to, was to flip the perspective on disability that, that, you know, if disability means less, I wanted to flip it from, from, oh, that's too bad, to what, to what do you do? And what do you do is like, what do you have to teach me? What do you have to teach me about being human? And that's why I also wanted to, wanted to tell the story. The, the idea of climbing the mountain was concurrent with the idea of, of making a documentary film on it. Because if we didn't make a film, then if we didn't tell the story, it didn't happen. Right. So in our Instagram world, right, or GoPro world, or Strava world nowadays, if it's not on any one of those, it never happened. It really didn't. There's no evidence. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I, uh, I was a funny story. I was doing a, I did a winter hike on Mount Washington last year with a buddy of mine. So we went together and then he went to go do it the next day. And he's like, I did it in this time. And I'm like, well, I got to go try to beat his time. And, you know, I like tied his time. But my watch, like my Apple watch, like got screwed up. So it didn't record it. And then I had to like go back to the beginning and use like real actual time, right? What time did I really start? What time did I really finish? And it was like, he's like, that's not real. That's no, that's not real at all. Because you don't actually have it on your GPS or on Strava because your watch gets screwed up. I'm like, oh my God, this is this is where it really matters now, but it, it's pretty funny. You have to go back and do it again now. I do. Now I have to go even faster and go uh, and then do it there. But so logistically, how do you, you know, Kilimanjaro, was it a one-day trip? Was it a multi-day trip? Talk to us a bit about that. I think it's more of a multi-day trip, right? Much more of a multi-day trip. So it was actually, it was actually two times or three times really on the mountain. So we did a scouting trip. And, and really for, uh, for trekkers, we took the, uh, we took the Marangu route, which is the Coca-Cola route. So it's the, it has huts on it. It's the most common route. They call it the Coca-Cola route because they sell Coca-Cola. My crew also found out that they sell beer and that the beer for surprisingly enough gets more expensive the higher you go. <laughs> Didn't dissuade them at all. They continued to have beer, but it, uh, we, we went the first time to see what the possibility were, was. I mean, you can do as much research as you want online, but you don't really know. Like, how wide is the trail, actually? What, how, what, are, what are the difficulties? Like, even just difficulties that wouldn't be a difficulty for you are just water bars. Like, there were water bars to maintain the trail throughout. And so, because they have their rainy season, and for you, you just step over this water bar and it's no big deal, you know, just a, basically a cut in the trail. For me, I had to go down into the water bar, out of the water bar. And so it was just excruciating. It was so slow and so difficult. And 
so, uh, so really for trekkers on that route, it is, it is a five day hike. So three days up to Kibo Hut, which is about 15.5. And then they wake you up in the middle of the night because it's the tallest freestanding mountain in the world, right? So you are supposed to be there for sunrise. That's the intention, which is climbing at, at nighttime is really where it's the highest, it's the most difficult. People hallucinate all the time. And, and, uh, but then they get there for sunrise and go, oh, this is so cool. For me, I did the first three days exactly the same as the trekkers. Got to Kibo Hut in three days. I mean, my, my time was a little bit, was a little bit slower. Uh, just, it took me between six, the first day was six, six and a half hours. Uh, second, and that's about, about a thousand meters of vertical. So that's really more like a three hour kind of thing. Like it's usually like a thousand feet of vertical an hour for, for trackers is kind of the, the rule of thumb. And, and I did that for the first 2000 feet because I was on a, that, that was basically on the Porter's Road, which was really just a dirt road. So, so for the first 2,000 feet, I was good. And then I slowed down a lot. Second day was 10 hours. Uh, third day was a little bit less. I don't remember, but it was somewhere between 6 and 10. But then the last, what people get up and they go in the middle of the night and get to the top, it's 4,200 feet of vertical in 5K. So it's not all that much distance, but when you get to the top, it's 48% of the oxygen at sea level. So you're getting, you're getting stupid. You don't realize that you're getting stupid. You think that you're just as smart as you ever were, but you're getting stupid as a result of the lack of oxygen. That last day for me took two and a half days on the scree field. So it's the cone of, of the volcano. And, and that, was, that was the hardest part. That was really, in some ways, like the first three days were like a warm up. To, to get there and get onto the scree field, which was just steep, it was loose, uh, and, and it's high altitude. So, so yeah, so that was, that was the hardest part for me uh, was, was getting up, getting up that, that, those last two days. And, but I also, the first day out of Kibo was probably one of my greatest days in, in sport. And, and it was because I totally surprised myself. We had a sailing winch that we'd put on the front of my four-wheeled vehicle because my four-wheeled vehicle was fixed axle rear-wheel drive. And so when it gets steep and it gets loose, I can pedal all I want, but I just dig a bigger and bigger hole, right? And so with the, with the sailing winch, we could attach to my pedals. I could pedal, turn the winch, and pull myself up a fixed rope. We got the sailing winch three days before we left it was not designed for this express purpose. And actually, I think we would have done much better if we'd just gone with a simple drum. You know, just a, just a simple drum, it would have been super easy. I mean, this is really more of like what you have on your, on your trailer for your boat probably would have been the best thing for me. That didn't work. And so I thought, this is it. We spent two years trying to get here. And now, now I've failed. Now we're not even going to get a chance to make it happen. And so... I just went as hard as I could. And you're, you're worried, you know, the worry at altitude is, is pleural edema and cerebral edema. So this is bleeding on the brain, bleeding or, you know, backwards, uh, bleeding in the lungs, bleeding, bleeding on the brain and which can be fatal, right? I mean, there are, there are fit people who die on that mountain every year. And so I just went as hard as I could. I thought, you know, they're going to have to pull me off for this. And we had eight foot long two by eight boards that we put down for a little bit of traction. The boarders would put them down. And I just, 
I just kept pedaling. I just kept hammering. And it was just, it was out of body in a lot of ways. It was just one of those, I feel like really I wanted to affect the lives of billions of people in the world, billions of people with physical disabilities who in a lot of ways are invisible because from the time we're little, we're taught not to stare at someone who looks different. And so I felt like I rode on their power. I mean, I don't, I don't, I feel like I can't own that day. I just, I just kept pedaling. And I think they were supplying the power really is what it comes down to having a goal bigger than me myself. And, and so I just kept plugging away and got much higher than, than we, than we anticipated finished at about 17.5 that day. So, so got about 2000 feet. And, uh, but yeah, that was, that was, that was really it. The next day was the day. I, I mean, the movie's out there. I don't want to give away yeah. all the movie. The next day there, there was, there was a conflict, which my, my director of the movie, I was, I was very disappointed at the, at the way that this conflict worked out. And she was really excited because she thought, now we have a story. So if anybody wants to watch it, it's uh, One Revolution, it's on Amazon Prime. It's actually also on the One Revolution channel on YouTube. So if you don't have Prime, it's, uh, it's free on YouTube. And, and uh, yeah, so, and then we slept in the crater that next night at about 18.5, which was, super super cool and not many people get a chance to do that and then made it to the summit and i'm saying i'm, I'm sort of underselling making it to the summit the next day it we were cutting trails the whole time and the trail like you know serpentines back and forth just all these switchbacks and switchbacks for me steering and pedaling were that was way more difficult the vehicle i used was was an adaptation of a vehicle that a guy named Mike Oxberger had had created a one-off uh, one-off hand cycle, and he was the guy who came up with an idea of you can pedal and do single track, and steer with your chest. So I have a chest pad that I lean on, and by leaning left and right, I can steer the handlebars without having to do it in my hands, so that I can continue to pedal. At the same time, switchbacks. I mean, it's like a ninety-degree turn back oh. and forth. So that was brutal. So we were just cutting trails and I was just going straight up, which is exactly what I did in the scree field as well. People are switching, doing switchbacks and I'm just blazing a trail straight up and it's, it's steep. And so, yeah, but it, but so it took six and a half days up. It took a day and a half down and it took two years to get there. That was the hardest part, the two years getting there. Yeah. Coming down. What was coming down like? Coming down. So, so we actually had full disc brakes. Uh, Dave Penny, who was my guide, actually bled one of my brakes, you know, so he had it so that I think that the caliper went from being silver to being black because it had heated up so much. And he wanted to make sure that I was that I was under control. But uh, but yeah, I down it took two and a half days to get up on that scree field. It took 15 minutes to get down. Wow. It, it was it was awesome. And but then you know, there are other parts of it. It still took a day and a half to get down. I mean, people talk about climbing a mountain. They don't tell you that you're halfway there. Right. You get to the top. And what do they say? Going up is optional. Coming down is mandatory, right? That's a thing a lot of people don't remember as well, that going down can actually be more dangerous than actually going up. And, and that's when you look at people who are climbing the Himalayas and things like that. That's usually when the problems happen, right? Is when they're going down and they've stretched themselves to the finish, to the top. But yeah, 
So, so yeah, it was, it was good, but there were times I was completely at walking pace on the way down, which was, which was brutal to me because I was, I was done. I just wanted to shower. Right. You're, you're over. It was time to move on. There was actually talking about the going down thing yesterday. Um, I'm sitting here about 15 minutes from the trailhead at Tuckerman's Ravine. Two guys were ice climbing or trying to ski yesterday and slid like 500 feet you know, yesterday and going down and there's no snow in the East. So it's like, yeah, that's not the right move to be making right now. Right. Because going up is actually easier than coming down when it's like that. And yeah, two guys had to get rescued out of there yesterday. Oh, but they're story. still alive. They're still alive. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's yeah. good. Well, I think, what is it? Mount Washington, they take just as many deaths as pretty much all the other mountains each year up, you know, out there. It's just, it's crazy. It's a brutal mountain. Yeah. It, it is. So tell us a little bit about what you're working on now, what you're doing today. You know, I'd love to hear about, you know, some of the initiatives you're doing. Yeah. So I have a variety of different things that I'm doing right now. I have two entities. I have a foundation, One Revolution Foundation. Our primary program with that is a school assembly program, which we haven't been doing too many of those in person or any of those in person since March of last year. Uh, it's, it's a, it's called name tags and it's about the labels that we put on ourselves and others, which are often our limitations, right? I can't do this because I'm too old because I'm too tired because I'm too poor because I'm too fat, you know, whatever it is. I mean, we're really good at the excuses. And so it's resilience based. Our motto is it's not what happens to you. It's what you do with what happens to you. It's intentionally, our message is intentionally universal that we as human beings, encounter difficulty no matter who we are and that by virtue of being in a wheelchair it doesn't mean that i'm encountering far more difficulty than than other people when i go through an airport i'm i'm usually a little disenchanted with the people walking because they're going so slowly and they're they're obstructing my way uh, right <laughs> what it comes down to you know so so uh so that's the big program with that uh with my with Chris White Elink with my for-profit company, it is corporate speaking, it's writing, it's uh, it's television. So I've written a couple of books. I did commencement at Middlebury in 2011. I did their commencement address, and NPR put it on their list of greatest commencement speeches ever, which was great. Uh, and uh, New York Times profiled 13 speeches and I was one of the 13 speeches which was nice because I had stayed with my parents the night before my father reads like you know five newspapers before anybody else wakes up and I woke up and he said you realize that you're the only only non-famous person doing a commencement address at a major college and I was like great thank you for the help I'm not that I was nervous before so that that really helped so so at least I was able to sit out and and uh and that the New York Times profiled it, but I, I wrote a book based on that. And, and that, was the, uh, that was the inspiration for a book that I call Things I Want to Remember Not to Forget. And, and it's, a, it's a short book, but it's a, it's a lot of just uh, anecdotes about things that I want to remember not to forget. With, uh, with the television stuff, I'm actually in the process of, of pitching a TV show. We've created a TV show called Chris Waddell Living It, an expert with a disability teaches a sport and adventure to two able-bodied people. So we're flipping that paradigm to able-bodied people who don't have any experience in that particular sport. 
and, and, and so it's an adventure travel show. And I've been excited about this. I've actually been thinking about this since before Kilimanjaro, which is at least 12 years prior kind of thing, 12, 13 years prior. So, uh, so doing that and with, uh, with COVID, we've had to pivot. We've had to pivot both with the school presentations. We've done some virtual ones. We're planning some more virtual ones. But we also started a podcast, a live podcast. We do it uh, 7 to 8 on the East Coast on Wednesdays. So 7 to 8 p.m. It's 5 to 6 p.m. Uh, uh, in uh, Mountain Time. And, and it's the Name Tags Chat podcast. So I have, I have uh, interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community. Um, I just had... Candace Cable, who was a six-time Boston Marathon winner, was involved in the beginning of Alpine or beginning of, of wheelchair racing. He competed in three sports: uh, wheelchair racing on the track. Uh, what else? Uh, alpine skiing and Nordic skiing. She had a 27-year Paralympic career. Wow. <laughs> nine Paralympics. So, so we talked to her on Wednesday, which was awesome, but also a sister podcast to, uh, to my, um, to the TV show. So it's Chris Waddell living at the podcast as well. And that's my definition for that one is it's experts in the experience of being human. And so I, I've, I've talked to a bunch of people in the Paralympic space, like one guy, Bobby McMullen, who type one diabetes lost his vision to type one diabetes when he was 29 years old, when he was in law school, I knew him because he came and skied. He was, he was on the ski team with me, visually impaired athlete, but really he said, I'm really effectively is blind. And he races mountain bikes, races mountain bikes downhill <laughs> and not on a tandem. That is crazy. But he that's races, a whole other level. So, so it's like, you've seen it on the ski hill. Right. Where, where there's somebody up front going left, 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 right, right, right. And that's what he's doing. But he's done all of the major downhills throughout the world. Unbelievable. And, and so, which is just absolutely amazing. And it's one of those, I mean, I told him when I talked to him, I was like, I felt like I was watching Mr. Magoo because he, he has a, a movie on YouTube that is, uh, I never get it completely right. It's how, it's, it's how Bobby sees it or the way Bobby sees it. And, and it, was, it was preparing to do Downeyville, you know, the, the biggest downhill in the U.S. And, and I, felt, I told him, I was like, I felt like I was watching Mr. Magoo, like something's going to happen. And, and, and there are times that things do happen. He takes some, takes some really big crashes, but he keeps getting up, which is, to me, is the definition of being an expert and being human. And I mentioned, I, I just talked to Darren Rawls earlier this week, a couple of days ago, and Darren, another one who just... I mean, the thing that blew me away about Darren, one, he won Kitzbühel, but years after he retired, he went and foreran Kitzbühel. So he was no longer on the team. <laughs> right. And he jumped in. He wasn't current. He wasn't running downhill. He did, did a few, few runs at Sugar Bowl on his downhill skis and, and jumped in and ran Kitzbühel. And I'm like, that is awesome. I don't think I could ever even imagine wanting to do that, but it's so cool that you do it. And so that's, uh, but it's, it's, it's athletes, it's artists, it's entrepreneurs, it's all over, all over the map, you know, talking to people who, who really show us that, you know, fear is, is that thing that can be a gigantic obstacle and a brick wall, or it's the thing that can, 
push us to realize things that we never thought were possible. And these are the people who are doing exactly that, the latter, you know, realizing what's possible. So it's been a fun ride and trying to figure it out and doing, doing some corporate speaking as well, virtually, which is, uh, which is, which is fun and bizarre and, and hard. You know, I did one where I was talking to a group and all I had on my computer as I was talking to them was a still photo of the woman who was hosting it. I'm minutes into this thing, you know, 15 minutes into it going, I'm not sure if this is frozen. I'm not sure if they can still hear me. You know, you feel like, Hey, uh, I just want to check. I'll get back to the story, but, uh, you guys still there? Okay. All right. You're still there. Okay, good. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a wild world, but that's, I guess sport helps us prepare for that. Right. No, it totally does. Right. And that's the best thing I love about sport is, you know, got to get, you know, get up one more time than you fall down. And that's what it takes in order to, you know, to do it. And the same thing in entrepreneurship and business and deals and everything, right. It's your, if, if it worked out more than 51% of the time, we'd all be billionaires. So that's the, it's, and, and so everything else is going, working out way less than 51% of the time. I can tell you that. And that's often the definition of success, right? Is, is the person who's willing to, to hold on just that moment longer than the next person. It, it really, it, you know, get up one more time than you fall down, but it is that perseverance and it's that willingness. And this is what comes from sport too, is to, add another tool to your tool bag right to say this is something that I don't do well can I figure out how how to get good at that and learning is absolutely awesome and it's really hard too right I mean it's one of those like oh I got to learn this right now okay let me see what I can do and that's that's the one that I'm trying to get myself to be to be more excited right right away to say Okay, that's what I want to learn. I want to jump into it. Like, you know, having a, a DSLR camera for some of my for my podcasts, you know, and having to learn that camera because because there's so many times it's so easy for it to just something goes wrong and you go, I don't know why anything I don't know why that went wrong. It's like, okay, well, maybe you should figure that one out. So it's true. I've got a 16-year-old daughter who can't figure out GS and it's just, you know, because that's like the essence of ski racing is giant slalom. I think it's like the, you know, downhill, you can get away with a little bit slalom. It's, you know, a different sport, but GS is sort of the essence of it. And it's like, and it just comes with feel. It comes with experience. It comes with trying new things. And it's such a metaphor for everything else. It's like, if you can figure out that essence of the turn and the acceleration and everything else, then it clicks and but it's the same thing with business it's the same thing with art and music and and all of that it's just finding that zone and what and it's so hard you know and people a lot of people ask me from my coaching days or whatever about it I'm like you just have to feel it and once you feel it you'll be like that's what it is right there and it's something you can't describe I can help you try to get there but until you feel it it's not going to happen and that only feeling only comes through repetition well, you know, it's a funny thing too, because sometimes it's taking a counterintuitive step. So like for me, one of my, one of my goals, I'm, I'm, my, one of my goals for this year is, is to read a book a week. So one book a week, so 52 books. And, 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 and part of the reason for that is that I don't feel like I read as, as fast and as well as I like to, as I would like to. 
But what I've, the way that I've approached it is I've actually tried to take a step back and encourage myself to read more slowly. To, because so much of it, I mean, you don't really pick up anything as your eyes are moving and, and really, and really ingrain the technique of what I'm trying to do. And so, so it seems to be working. I can't tell you definitively that it is, but it really does seem to be working. And so sometimes with the things, with the objectives of getting better, sometimes we need to take a counterintuitive step that we're banging our heads against the wall for so long and go, okay, can we try this a different way? That opens up the perspective that you go, oh, okay, now it makes sense, which is the hard part about being a coach, right? Say the same thing over and over a hundred times in a hundred different ways so that they get it. Oh, okay, now I understand. It's like, why didn't you tell me that before? It's like, I've been telling you that for the last five <laughs> years. <laughs> right. Just, I found the way that clicked with you. No, and it's so true. But Chris, this was awesome, you know, and I appreciate your time on a Friday afternoon. Where can people find you? Where can they find more about what you're working on? Uh, so Chris Bueno Living It is, is probably the best way to find me. So that's on Facebook. That's on Instagram. Uh, you can go to Chris Waddell speaking. If you want to, if you want to grab a copy of my book, I do the fulfillment. So you can go to Chris Waddell speaking and get my book. The children's book is there well, as well, which is, uh, is it lonely to be a four leaf clover? Uh, which I wrote and I illustrated. I had to learn how to draw in order to illustrate this. So uh, you can critique my drawings as well if you'd like, but uh, I'm happy to personalize it if you'd like me to personalize it. Uh, so yeah, Chris Waddell speaking is the website, onerevolution.org uh, is, and it's O-N-E hyphen revolution is, is for the foundation. And yeah, check it out. The, the, uh, website uh, we're live on one one revolution wednesdays five to six mountain time seven to eight eastern time with the name tags chat podcast and the podcasts chris put out living it and the name tags chat podcast are both uh are, are both on like all the usual suspects you know the the spotify's the the apple podcast the you know, all, all of those things. So check out the podcast. They, they have been a ton of fun. So, uh, so I hope, it, and I hope to keep getting better. So if you have any critiques for me as well, I'm happy to, happy to hear that. So. Perfect. And I'll share everything as well with all the listeners, but Chris, this was awesome. It was an honor and thank you very much for being part of it. Oh, thanks again. This is awesome. And keep it up. And then this is, this is great. We'll hopefully, we'll hopefully get to make some turns one of these days. Once, uh, once the floodgates are open and we're allowed out in public again. I know. I can't wait. I can't wait. And to be able to jump on a plane or actually, you know, I used to complain about going to New York City all the time. And now it's like, I wish I'd get on train to go to New York City just for the day or something to, you know, change the scenery. So, but if anyone's listening to this, if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, email me at kenintheexecutiveathletes.com. Go out there, keep crushing it. And like Chris said, you know, live beyond your fears and beyond your limits. Thanks for listening.